Hello. Today is the first part in a two-part series called A Bipartisan Carbon Tax. We'll be learning from the EU how tariffs can do for our atmosphere what COP27 did not. In this post, I dive into atmospheric carbon taxation as it exists in the world today and what major initiatives are underway presently. Over the course of this research, I became pleasantly surprised with the extent in which systems are in place and the rate of growth evidenced, mostly outside of the U.S. As the European Union has for a long time had the world's most extensive carbon tax, I start by a preface about Ukraine and the European Union as a hopefully fun tangent which explores the workings of EU power structures. Standards bodies. What is humanity's most powerful, self-organizing tool? I believe it might be standards bodies. Here's how I interpret the term. A standards body is a focused group of one or more people dedicated to the creation of a set of rules which may be followed at large, either voluntarily or by force. A standard can have as wide an effect as national regulation, or be as small as a household rule for dinner time. Standards affect every aspect of our lives. They define how web browsers choose to display web pages. They give us decentralized email as a backbone of the internet age. They allow money to move around the world and allow you to plug in your printer. The list goes on and on. This is a field which benefits greatly from a careful study of human incentives, and when the rules are right, can have a strong positive effect. I think two things are important for any standard. One, a rule should accurately reflect reality, such as by internalizing and externalized pain, in order to tighten a feedback loop. And two, when a rule is exploited by humans with intentions not matching those of the authors, a positive outcome still results. Throughout this post, keep those two in mind as a litmus test for a well-designed policy. Section two, Ukraine's accession to the EU. As the world has watched the war in Ukraine unfold, a continual theme has been Ukraine's membership in the EU. A close look at what changes are required by Ukraine reveals the power of the EU standards. Heading 1, the Istanbul Convention. The Istanbul Convention, signed in 2011, is, quote, the first legally binding instrument which creates a comprehensive legal framework and approach to combat violence against women. It is focused on preventing domestic violence, protecting victims, and prosecuting the accused offenders. In a summary of the wiki section, Ukrainian leaders have been trying to ratify the Istanbul Convention since 2011, but faced opposition in their parliament, apparently largely due to churches and some politicians disliking the use of the term gender. This passed in 2022 due to an increase in the crimes of the occupied territories and due to an increased political will to join the European Union. The next heading, what the heck is anti-corruption law anyway? For over two decades, Ukraine has consistently ranked in about 120 out of 180 most corrupt countries. The EU requires that members have in place anti-corruption measures. But what does this mean exactly, and how can you actually fight corruption without getting corrupted yourself? 
Well, there's a French-based organization called the Group of States Against Corruption, or GRECO, with 50 member states, including all of the European Union ones, the United States, and others. They run a periodic, round-based evaluation process whereby officials investigate and then rank a given country. A passing grade here is typically required for EU membership. Reports are typically published after some months of delay for internal evaluation, and I took a look at the Ukraine 2021 report published on the Council of Europe website. If you're inclined to read it yourself, here's a couple of tips. Each recommendation has a premise in italics, followed by an evaluation from Greco, a response from Ukraine, and an acknowledgement, again, of the response, um, the acknowledgement by Greco. And then it's given a final grade, which you can think of sort of like in a traffic light system as passing, failing, or, or somewhere in between. Um, to make things easier, you can jump to the conclusions on page 26, which form a bit of an executive summary. But my key takeaways include, one, judicial review, such as removing laws that could criminalize just judges based on their verdicts given, and providing physical security, such as guards, for the judges. Secondly, they focus on parliamentary review, such as disclosure of assets, separation of entrepreneurial concerns, and broadcasting meetings and publicly posting their plans of the plans of parliament. And third, prosecutorial office changes, such as the adoption of concrete and actionable ethics standards, self-recusal standards, and appeals for promotions or dismissals, and also, importantly, a random assignment of cases to different prosecutors, so there can't be favoritism in there. Um, I thought all this was a pretty interesting look into like how you can better, better design a system. Um, and in the conclusion of the report, it says that Ukraine has implemented satisfactorily, or, or dealt with in a satisfactory manner, nine out of the 31 recommendations contained in the fourth round evaluation report. Um, for those eager for Ukraine's admittance, perhaps this should give some pause. I, for one, will be eager to see in the 2022 report, uh, when it's released, sort of what progress has been made. In a narrative of international organizations from the past 100 years, such as the League of Nations, the United Nations, and many different continental unions, the EU forms the world's only supranatorial union, where governance by the union can take precedence over the national governments contained within. Designed to entice Iron Curtain countries, it is this hard power which makes the union scope anti-corruption legislation enforceable and this same power which gives membership such a strong value. I can't be alone in thinking it's a shame that such a powerful and novel anti-corruption force is limited to just a single continent, although there's cer it's certainly not a perfect system. Section 3. Carbon Taxes as They Exist Today A carbon tax usually has two components. A bit which charges a fee for emitted carbon, and a bit which spends that money in a way which boosts the economy. There are many ways to implement these two components. Fees can be charged through carbon credits and carbon price fixing. Money can fund decarbonization efforts or backlogged local issues. Despite the variety, it seems any subtype is better than no regulation at all. And this, the selection of which one largely comes down to political ideology and implementation skill. 
Cap and trade is perhaps a familiar term and indicates a prescribed budget for corporate emissions and after which companies must, must purchase or sell allotments on an open or closed marketplace. This has gotten pushback sometimes for allowing emitters to skate by, but as we'll see, that fear is lifted with a properly maintained system. Here's a quick, there's a quick video in the blog post that inter introduces the idea of cap and trade by the, by the UN. It's about a five minute video, um, but basically they go into like different, th the trade-offs between a carbon tax, which has sort of like a fixed price uh, of, of per ton or a carbon marketplace, which says, okay, you can have so many and so many tons, you go get in a bidding war over it. So let's take a look into Europe's emissions trading system, or EU-ETS. Since 2005, the European Union has been operating a cap-and-trade emissions marketplace. Any factory emitting carbon must purchase allotments at a government auction in order to do so. The revenue goes to a decarbonization budget distributed among member countries. Unlike a fixed-price carbon tax, the price fluctuates according to free market forces of supply and demand. Interestingly, speculators and investors have market access to EU ETS, um, which is not the case for all ETS markets, and this sort of has a jackal and hide effect, where it can both smooth the volatility at times and also create it at different times for different reasons. But in either case, their goal is to transition Europe away from fossil fuels and the belief stated in the report is that by being a world leader and driving domestic innovation, Europe will have a strong competitive advantage in the long term. Every two or three years, the governing body revisits how the system is working and tunes parameters which affect the market dynamics, much like the management of any other economic currency system, such as the U.S. monetary supply. The parameters they can tune include, one, the total amount of carbon allowed to be emitted in Europe each year, or their carbon budget, and this decrements every year. Uh, two, the amount of free allocations given out to keep the European industry competitive with international industry. And three, uh, since uh, the past few years, uh, their operations of their stability reserve in buying and selling surplus allotments. And then we have a chart here showing how they've recently in increased their, their, their budget decrementation rate from 2.2 to 4.2%, meaning they'll come in at net zero at 2040 instead of 2050. Um, moving on, you can see that uh, they have a 2022 annual report, which describes sort of how it's been going. Um, and they, they, they sort of begin by talking about the 2013 rollout as, as starting cautiously with like a large allocation and a low price, um, and then a gradual per year reduction. And they say, you know, it sort of had a weak effect on emissions. They're not really sure if it did anything at all. Um, and then sort of as the economic and political situation has stabilized and people have been more motivated to stop carbon uh, carbonization of the atmosphere um they've ratcheted it up and the free allocations have been decreasing the scarcity has been increasing and so the prices have been increasing and the report is very careful to point out that uh their stuff encourages stable markets and and recent energy spikes can be attributed to other causes um a couple of cases illustrate the effects of carbon pricing and we can we can look into them 
So for example, there's a 2020 interview of a CEO of a Swedish net zero steel plant, which was supportive of ETS because um, they, they, they aren't using they aren't emitting carbon, but they're doing it in a net zero way. Um, but their opinion was that it didn't go far enough. Also, according to the report, Increased demand for coal in 2022 has pushed up both the price of coal in uh, orange on the chart below and the cost of carbon permits, but that the permit price was not sufficient to drive a switch to natural gas due to the high prices in natural gas. Um, now, since the report came out, we can see there has been a war with Russia and Germany has been switching from coal to natural gas, uh, largely attributed to that reason. Um, but yeah, I think it's sort of interesting to see the, the, the price spikes of carbon permits and energy prices going up together. Um, usually, but, not, but they're not all uh, uh, tightly linked, of course. Um, so that's the, that's the permitting. And then when we move on to the next heading here, we can say, where does the money go? Because we're, we're charging all this in, in, in fees. Where does it go? Um, so there's about 14 billion euro raised annually at 2022 rates. Um, of which about 70 or more percent is budgeted towards emissions reductions. And they require 50 plus percent, so 70 is, is above their requirements. Um, for comparison, this is about 1.4% of the quoted 1 trillion euro needed annually for Europe to hit net zero by 2050. Um, and then we have a chart here showing their budget every year. Um, here we are coming up at 14 billion. And uh, they also have a chart on where the funds are spent. Um, this is just for 2020. Um, and this is particularly important because a carbon tax, which affects the cost of all goods and services in a broadly inflationary manner, is considered to be regressive, or that is, having an outsized impact on the lowest income earners. And so we can see the chart, and, and I'll, I'll read out the caption, which I think conveys the point, um, which particularly countries from northern and southern Europe use the funds mainly to develop renewable energy to meet the European Union target, while central and European member states, central, sorry, central and eastern European member states gave preference to encouraging a shift to low emission and public forms of transport. Countries from eastern Europe invested in energy efficiency measures. So we can see there's, there's a variety of ways, whether it's changing your ener energy supply, changing your transport, or using less energy. And different countries chose different approaches. Um, and I think this is interesting because we commonly highlight, including in my previous post, the metric of, of, of CO2 equivalent emitted per kilowatt hour. Um, but that does short shrift to investments in reducing of energy usage. In one measure, Germany at 580 grams per kilowatt hour is four to eight times worse than France. However, on a per capita basis, they're only about twice as polluting as France. Then again, if you look at your author's home country on a per capita basis, it's not looking so good either at three times that of France on a per capita basis. Last but not least, the EU ETS funds a 38 billion uh, euro innovation fund and a 48 billion euro modernization fund, which are supporting entrepreneurship and infrastructure respectively. Unfortunately, I'll have to await for some future day to review their annual reports. So this is the end of part one on carbon taxes. Um, 
Next week in part two, I'll talk about ETS systems around the world and then focus in on U.S. policy, where there have been some exciting recent developments. Um, that's it for now. Thank you so much.